RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Priority One is brought to you by our Patreon supporter, Jim DeVico. We thank him and all our other patrons for their monthly support. Command codes verified. Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on secure channel. Hello, Captains. You're listening to episode 367 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, and your weekly report from the Star Trek multiverse. Recorded live on Tuesday, May 22nd, 2018, and available for download or streaming on Friday, May 25th at Priority One Podcast. I'm Elijah. I'm Kenna. And I'm Tony. And in our audio booth is our audio engineer, Quinters. Hola, amigos. All right, Kenna, why don't you tell us what we've got coming up this week? Well, we're trekking out Nicholas Meyer as he spills the beans on his rumored Star Trek miniseries. The women of Star Trek Discovery talk diversity. And Netflix's take on the toys that made us, including Star Trek, gets a second season. In Star Trek Online and gaming news, we're checking out the latest that the gaming world has to offer. And later, our science advisor, Dr. Robert Hurt, has another report from the Astrometrics Lab. Of course, as always, before we wrap up the show, we'll open hailing frequencies for your incoming messages. Captains, those hailing frequencies are always open, and you know we love to hear from you between episodes, so please reach out to us. We're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Priority One Podcast. We're on Twitter at Priority One Pod. You can even send us an email via incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. Captains, we have a great announcement this week. We have two new patrons who have decided to contribute to the overall production of Priority One Podcast. So a big thanks to Hans and Sam for their monthly contribution to this show. Now, Captains, you know we have to take a moment to thank our patrons because without their ongoing monthly support, we wouldn't be able to produce this show from week to week. Now, if you've been thinking about becoming a Patreon contributor, you may want to head over to patreon.com forward slash priority one to check out all the interesting perks that we have to offer, including a whole new secondary episode available exclusively to our patrons titled On Screen, where we review some other sci-fi franchise. For instance, we are about to wrap up The Orville. Coming up next, well, you'll just have to find out. Now, we understand that a financial contribution may not be in the cards for you, and we understand that. There are other ways that you can support Priority One Podcast. For instance, you can share the show with your fellow Trekkies and remind them that they can get their weekly roundup of Star Trek news right here at PriorityOnePodcast.com. And don't forget that we need your reviews. So head over to iTunes, find us there, and be sure to let other people know why you enjoy listening to Priority One Podcast from week to week. As always, we're so very grateful for your ongoing support of the show, and we love it when you express that support whether it's financially, through social media, or through keeping hailing frequencies open. Now let's check out the latest news from the Star Trek multiverse. I don't know. Then let's check it out. 
Star Trek legend Nicholas Meyer's recent involvement in the franchise has been a roller coaster of emotions. From his announcement as a consulting producer on Star Trek Discovery to his apparent lack of involvement in the series, then reports of his secret Star Trek project, but his inability to speak about it, and now... Meyer was recently a guest of honor at the University of California's discussion entitled Shakespeare and Star Trek. During the Q&A, Meyer was asked by an audience member about his involvement in a rumored Star Trek miniseries. Meyer replied, quote, I was hired to write a standalone Star Trek-related trilogy, details of which I can't discuss or I'd have to kill you. I was writing it for CBS All Access. But at the moment, CBS is at a war with Paramount slash Viacom. So I don't think my project is going anywhere in a hurry because everything is on hold while they sort out this merger business. That's my story and I'm sticking to it, end quote. So we have a possible Nicholas Meyer Star Trek trilogy that is at best delayed. For a link to the Trek Core article, head over to our show notes. It was cheeky at best for CBS to 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 go for a mini series film thing when they've got this other film thing going on on the side. I'm not surprised it's gotten nasty between uh, between the involved parties, and I don't want to go there. This but, is a total you know. throwback to those 1980s, you know, television mini series special events things. It's 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 this is still a TV project. You know, Lord of the Rings was a movie trilogy that they filmed all at the same time, right? That's like the only one that's mm-hmm. ever but done that, and that was a billion dollars. This is more along the lines of like those old school big hair nineteen eighties productions that aired, you know, once every week for three weeks or something like that. Stephen King's Langoliers. <gasps> I love that movie ish miniseries movie thing. So it's a throwback to that sort of arrangement. I, I don't think that's what's got Paramount in a twist. I think what Paramount is getting at is that it's this is, Nicholas Myers is a is a is not a TV guy. He's a film guy. Why are you hiring film guys to work on your side of the fence? And I also think that they're not wanting to spend any more intellectual capital, let's call it, with the license until they get the merger sorted out. Because that's one of the stupidest things about CBS, Paramount, Viacom, whatever, is splitting up the Star Trek license. They need to get that sorted out. And the joke of it all is that they're all under national amusement. Like, that's what that's what drives me <laughs> bananas. Yeah, it's, it's a bit... It's all twisted. It's all the Redstone family and all that drama. That's what it's been from day one. And their accounting issues and how they want to make their tax bill go. I mean, it's just it's just been stupid from the beginning. But that leads us to our first community question. What do you hope Nicholas Meyer's trilogy is about? Khan's story between Space Seed and the Wrath of Khan? As it bore the daughter of the Klingon Chancellor Gorkhan from the Undiscovered Country? What happened to the major powers following the destruction of Romulus? Let us know what you hope will be the project in the comments section for this episode or by answering the community question post on our social media platforms. This past Sunday, May 20th, Star Trek Discovery made an appearance at Vulture Festival, a festival for all things entertainment. Executive producer Gretchen J. Berg was joined by series star Sonequa Martin-Green, Mary Wiseman, Mary Chifo, and Michelle Yeoh in a panel titled, Star Trek Discovery, The Future is Definitely Female. Diversity was a major talking point in the panel, and according to Vulture.com, the cast is, quote, over the casting backlash, end quote. During the panel, Michelle Yeoh, who plays Philippa Georgiou, recalls her introduction to Hollywood, quote, 
I remember when I first came to Hollywood and a director, who was a good friend, said if they cast a black male lead, they won't be able to cast me. How times have changed. I'm so blessed that I'm still in the industry while it's changing. End quote. When discussing the aforementioned backlash, Yo also said, quote, This is the spirit of Star Trek. Diverse characters are not just tokens. End quote. Sonequa Martin-Green continued her discussion on the importance of diversity when she sat down with Deadline earlier this week. In response to the progressive message of Star Trek, Martin Green said, quote, We have to keep making this picture of the future that people can look to. It's always to make people look ahead so that they can bring that future into their lives in the present. End quote. She continues, quote, We have to keep being not just a reflection of today, but a picture of tomorrow. End quote. But diversity wasn't the only topic discussed. Martin Green talked a bit about Discovery's first season and what was to come in season two. In discussing how serialization affected Discovery's opening season, Sonequa responded, quote, I do think that there were certain points we explored in season one that made people question the spirit of Star Trek and our show, but it's only because we were servicing serialization, end quote. And finally, Martin Green responded to questions of Spock's appearance in Star Trek Discovery, quote, It is the Enterprise in that shot. We all know who is on the Enterprise. You see Sarek and Burnham look at each other, and there you have it, end quote. For a link to the full interview, check out the show notes. So I regret missing the Vulture Festival because it, was, it happened right in New York City, and it was too late by the time someone from the New York City away team had pointed it out to me, uh, Marina. I would have loved to have attended. Instead, I did the Wrath of Khan event that happened the Saturday before, which is a separate story that I'll save for later. But this seemed like a really powerful panel, something that that had, you know, meant it was much more um, philosophically and poignantly important to the overall mythos of Star Trek than it was like, oh, let's play a clip from the season two, which is great, right? We need to address these things. So I, I, I regret not being able to, to attend that, that Sunday morning, but it seemed great. It seemed like a great panel. I want to talk about the serialization thing because I don't think that was the problem. Oh, here we go. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I don't think that was the problem. I was a little worried. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, I was yeah. worried. You know what? As I'm, as I'm reading this, I was worried because I was like, here we go again. But, you know, I, I think it's interesting that she got asked about it. And I think it's interesting the way she responded. I, she's not a writer. And again, I, can't, I you know, she doesn't put the words on the paper and she doesn't order the, the shows the way they are. And I've been, and I'm on record saying I think that it was the schedule crunch that really is really what did it to him. I don't think it was the serialization that was the problem. I think it was they tried to do too much in the season. So it may, if that's what she means by serialization, meaning that we had we had to get from point A to point B in 15 shows or 13 shows, whatever it was, maybe that's what she's referring to. But it wasn't the fact that they linked the stories together. It's that they tried to cram too much into it. And hopefully they take that lesson into season two and, and let people get to know the characters a little better rather than trying to get the plot to go to the right spot. That's uh, hopefully that's what they learn. I agree. I do want to take a second and talk a little bit about the the Wrath of Khan event that happened at NJ Pack with a Q and A with William Shatner. So I know we talked a little bit about this a few weeks ago. How amazing the experience can be when you are in an audience with other Trekkies. I mean, we've all seen Wrath of Khan at least once, if not multiple times. 
Uh, and this is not the first time that the Wrath of Khan has been in a theater environment because during its anniversary last year, National Amusements did a, a re-showing at, uh, as, as a Fathom event. So NJ Pack is a massive house, massive house and beautiful. I had never actually, I, actually I had never been there before, the New Jersey Performing Arts Center in Newark, New Jersey. And to sit there with what is arguably an opera house theatrical performance hall with multiple mezzanines, multiple tiers filled with Trekkies was again a a almost spiritual experience because the moment the credits start people are applauding people are wooting during moments in the in the in iconic moments in the film people start cheering you can hear people crying when when Spock passes away at the end this is an experience that i i i i'm telling you right now if you have the opportunity Make sure you go experience a filming, a, a viewing of Star Trek in a large group setting like this because it will give you such a, it'll open your mind and your eye to viewing Star Trek in such a different way than you may have been viewing it before. Then William Shatner came out, and how do I put this nicely? He is comfortable with saying whatever it is that he wants to say. Doesn't matter how he says it or what he says, he doesn't care. And he is most certainly an entertainer. It is very just, he, he knows what gets the laugh and he knows how to approach his audience. Cool, but I walked away kind of liking him a little less than I already did. Sometimes it's a case of you don't want to meet your heroes. Sometimes, sometimes it's just, it's- Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Yes, you don't want to meet your heroes, and I think he's at a point. There was he's he's kind of followed a curve. And this is just my personal opinion, and opinions will differ. He he's kind of followed a curve. He was sort of like re resentful of Star Trek for a while, and then he came to embrace it. And there was a period of about ten or fifteen years where he had he found the sweet spot between being an old guy who's a little past his prime, but able to laugh at himself a little bit and enjoy the spotlight and kind of and and say things with a twinkle in his eye. He may have cruised past that over the last three or four years, and, I, I, and it's sad. It's sad because for a while he he did find that sweet spot, and it was it was really entertaining, and uh, he was able to work a crowd well. And that kind of, I think it may have it may he may have kind of sailed past that point now. Captains, there's our second community question. If you have attended a large audience viewing, not even large, but just a, a large group audience viewing of perhaps Star Trek or something else in a franchise that you enjoy, let us know what you think about the experience. Did you attend the Wrath of Khan with the Shatner Q&A in your region? Let us know what you thought about the experience in our comments section for this episode. Jennifer Morrison, the star of Once Upon a Time, Star Trek 2009, and our Trek It Out segment a couple of episodes ago, recently appeared on People TV's Couch Surfing. There she spoke about some of her most memorable roles, and her children. According to Morrison, she's become friends with William Shatner and often teases the 87-year-old Star Trek star about being his mother. Morrison tells People TV's host Lola Uganake, quote, We've had some exchanges about him being my son and me being proud of him and him thinking I was a good mom. It's really nice. He's a very thoughtful child, end quote. But that's not all. Morrison continues, I'm also Chris Pine's mom, which I'm totally fine with that as well. I'm good with both situations. 
I've got some good kids, end quote. How exactly does this work across universes? I don't care. I love space moms. Because, you know, there's a really long-running <laughs> sort of sort of Twitter funny relationship between Gates McFadden and Will yeah, Wheaton. The, yeah, they, that's funny. Space son and space mom, and that's always been so adorable to me. I mean, these are these are actors; they have completely different lives, um, but they still share this sort of connection. And I love the idea that um, that there's another space mom, space son thing going on out there. But you know, yeah, I'm just thinking: is Morrison younger than both of them? I think she's older than Chris Pine. She may be. Well, she may, yeah, I was going to say she may be near peer to Chris Pine, but I mean. Yeah. Clearly, Shatner's older than her. And strictly speaking, she is mother to both of them. Isn't that correct? Because the timeline didn't split until after the baby was born. Uh, this is tricky because <gasps> because did it. I suppose theoretically they would have made it back to Iowa by the time the Kelvin maybe because maybe it was like a premature induced labor because of stress and stuff. This is tricky. This yeah. is very tricky. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, that's I don't that's know. that's why I was I asking. How can this happen in both universes? I, Further thought. But I Further think it's before is, it's before the split, I think. I think. I think it's argu- we're going to have to research Prove me this. wrong. We're going to have to research At this. me, bro. Yeah. <laughs> During the winter holiday season of 2017, Netflix released a documentary series outlining the history of some of the world's most iconic toys. The series, titled The Toys That Made Us, had episodes that featured He-Man, Barbie, G.I. Joe, and the other Star franchise, and the docuseries was a surprise hit for the streaming giant. On May 25th, Netflix will release season two of The Toys That Made Us. This time around, we'll hear about the ups and downs of Lego, Transformers, Hello Kitty, and of course, Star Trek. During the season two trailer, Star Trek's slow start in the toy market is discussed. A woman is heard saying, quote, they just put Star Trek stickers on and then repackage it, end quote, followed by what sounds like Doug Drexler saying, quote, they were toys I wouldn't buy, end quote. But the news from the trailer gets better. A man explains, quote, it went from these rough toys to almost model quality, end quote. Images of Mego, Galoob, Playmates, and the newest McFarlane line can all be seen. For links to all of this week's stories, including a link to the toys that made us on Netflix, check out the show notes at PriorityOnePodcast.com forward slash PO367. That's it for this week's Star Trek news. Now let's find out what happened this week in the world of Star Trek gaming. Computer status report. Status. Incoming message. I'm only in the mood for good news today. The Herc are most certainly a threat, but the Klingon Empire may not be so willing to commit the entirety of its resources to the battle. The Herc defeated them once before. Can they afford to be defeated again? In a lore post by Ambassador Kell, Martok and Jimpok exchange words as to the oncoming battle ahead. Martok is eager to take on the Herc and battle alongside his allies in the Federation and Romulan forces. Chancellor Jimpok, on the other hand, has other plans. The second episode in the new story arc in Expansion 4 is titled Armistice. In this episode, Kira Nerys asks you to team up with her and Dr. Bashir to save an old friend. In an episode titled The Search, you team up with Odo, Kira, and Garrick to face the Herc in the Gamma Quadrant. And captains, if you're still on the fence about purchasing the Gamma Vanguard pack for about $150, perhaps this latest announcement might finally push you over the line. They've now added Jem'Hadar EV suits and three Jem'Hadar Vanguard bridge officers. 
This is another really nice addition to this pack and it's just adding to the value of it. Like I've said before, take my own money, please give me this pack. I want it so bad. Yeah, I'm starting to think that I kind of want this pack myself. Really? Maybe, I don't know. Well, I was looking at the uh, Twitch stream that they had done during the week and they were showing off some of the ships and they are fantastic. The ship team done um, a truly amazing job putting these together. The level of detail in them is fantastic, and some of the me mechanics are really, really good. Both the Jemadar and the Cardassian ships are just absolutely amazing. Now, one thing that I did pick up on in that stream, unrelated to ships or the Vanguard pack, is... Well, actually, not the Vanguard pack, but anyway. The playable Cardassian species. From what I could gather... From the way they worded it, the Cardassian species is going to be an unlock available in the Federation and Klingon factions. It doesn't seem like they're going to be in the Jem'Hadar faction. It's going to be a new addition that you will most likely unlock with Zen. There may be other ways to unlock it, we don't know yet, but I thought that was very interesting. Well, Captains, if you're eager to get into Expansion 4, you don't have to wait much longer. Because it launches on June 5th on PC and later this summer on consoles. We were talking about this on the Priority One Armada TeamSpeak server. And uh, I totally knew this was going to happen around the 5th. Uh, because I'm away uh, on holidays. <laughs> and of course the launch is going to happen when I'm not around. <laughs> and coming up on the calendar, this weekend they're running a 20% sale on all packs in the C-Store. And this runs until the 28th, Monday the 28th. And captains, if you need to level up in time for Victory is Life, between now and June 5th, captains can take advantage of a double XP event, rewarding 100% or two times the bonus above the normal amounts. This will be available on all content that rewards skill points and expertise. Which is great, because i got to get through some trees. Fantastic. Yeah, the, the double XP is a great opportunity if... Um Maybe you created a Delta character and you didn't finish leveling it up. You can do it now while this double XP is going on and get ready for the release of Victory is Life. And, uh, of course, it will also help you to earn extra specialization points, uh, and you can never have too many of those. Also running through June 5th is the Phoenix Prize Pack. If there's an older ship, like the Ferengi Nandi warship that you might have been itching for, or maybe an old limited edition prize that you thought you missed out on, like the Zephram Cochrane shotgun, well, that and many other retired items are back via this prize pack. These special packs are available for 4,500 dilithium each, or 40,000 dilithium for a pack of 10. Now, if you don't want to purchase the boxes using Dilithium, that's okay, because during the special event, you can get one box per day for free by visiting one of the Phoenix Prize Pack vendors. That's Grimm on Drazana Station or Ona on Deep Space Nine. And again, this will run until June 5th. I was really surprised to see that they brought back the Phoenix Prize Pack event because it's not that long ago since they had this. Like, it's only a month no, or two. I yeah, not even, yeah, not even. Yeah, uh, so I was really, really surprised. One thing I do want to say about the Phoenix Prize Pack, um, it's fantastic. I love it. Uh, I think the drop rates, you know, like for getting ultra rare and epic tokens could be a tad bit higher, but they really need to update the box. There's, there's a lot of things that have come out since this first was released, and they've never updated the box. And uh, I think it will be good for them to start adding in some of those 
items that have um, been released since the initial launch of this, because there's a lot of returning players. I'm noticing this particularly in the Priority 1 Armada. There is a lot of uh, players returning to the game after quite a sizable hiatus away from it. Myself included. Mm. Well, that wraps it up for this week in Star Trek Online and Gaming News. Now, let's head over to the Astrometrics Lab with Dr. Robert Hurt. For today's astrometric support, I wanted to take a look at what it would take to make those first fleeting steps to reach the final frontier, especially if you happen to be living on a planet that's substantially larger than the Earth. For the last 20 years, astronomers have been diligently cataloging the discoveries of planets orbiting other stars. At this point, we literally know of thousands of such objects. A significant fraction of these fall into a category that has been dubbed super-Earths, referring to planets that are significantly larger than the Earth, but significantly smaller than the smaller gas giants in our system, like Uranus and Neptune. While there is not currently a rigorous definition of a super-Earth, it roughly corresponds to planets that fall somewhere between 2 and 10 times the mass of the Earth. On the low-mass side, that roughly corresponds to a planet that would appear 25% larger in diameter than Earth. One of the principal ways that astronomers search for planets around other stars is to look for tiny decreases in the brightness of the star corresponding to moments when planetary disks pass in front of the stellar disks, blocking a tiny fraction of their light. This means that larger planets are easier to detect than smaller planets because they block a slightly larger fraction of the star's light, creating a stronger signal. Taking this into consideration, it's not surprising that planet-hunting telescopes like NASA's Kepler mission have actually discovered a lot more super-Earths than Earth-sized worlds. In fact, most of Kepler's discoveries of terrestrial rocky worlds that lie within their star's habitable zones, which are the ranges from the star we expect liquid water to be able to exist on such planets, are actually for super-Earths, not Earth-sized planets. So in our considerations of which exoplanets discovered to date could be hospitable potentially for life, super-Earths have been a major part of that dialogue. Now, a recent article submitted to the International Journal of Astrobiology has actually gotten a lot of buzz on the internet for its examination of how difficult to nearly impossible it might be for intelligent life forms living on a super-Earth to ever make it to space in the first place. The argument goes something like this. In order to put a payload into space, you actually have to burn a lot of fuel to accelerate that payload until it finally reaches escape velocity. Now by a lot, I mean something on the order of 10,000 times as much fuel by mass as the payload if you were launching it from the Earth. The problem is, if you start increasing the size and mass of the planet, then you're also increasing that escape velocity. Since kinetic energy scales with the square of the velocity, then the energy requirements start increasing really rapidly as you try to lift off from a larger world. As an example, if you were trying to lift an average one-ton satellite off of the surface of the super-Earth Kepler-20b, which has roughly ten times the mass of the Earth, you would have to use a rocket about three times the size of a Saturn V, which to date is the largest rocket we have ever launched. 
Now that is a really significant investment in resources and finances to get a small object launched into space, which falls way short of actually propelling a human or humanoid or equivalent on that particular super-Earth. Which isn't impossible, just very hard. However, it may turn out to be a moot point after all. There has been a lot of discussion in the scientific community as to whether super-Earths are going to be particularly habitable or not. And it seems there's a growing consensus that, past a certain size, the answer is likely not. When you examine the observed properties of the known super-Earths, including their masses and radii, it seems that there's a transition that occurs at roughly twice the mass of the Earth, after which the size of the planets begin to swell disproportionately, suggesting they have very thick atmospheres that probably have a lot of hydrogen and helium gas. This would make them much closer to Uranus and Neptune than the Earth, and probably a lot less habitable, at least for life as we know it. And at a mass of only twice the Earth, the energy requirements to get into space are certainly less convenient than on Earth, but not prohibitive. So maybe intelligent life on the smaller super-Earths won't be so Earth-bound after all. Of course, the flip side of this story is that any intelligent life that occurs on planets that are smaller than the Earth will have a proportionally easier time leaving their home world and moving off into space. For instance, the TRAPPIST-1 system that I've spoken about in previous astrometrics reports has seven worlds that are all equal to or less than the mass of the Earth. So any hypothetical intelligent beings on these worlds might have an easier time getting around. Moreover, in this system, the planets are so closely spaced that traveling from one planet to another is a lot closer to going from the Earth to the Moon than it is going from Earth to Mars. So who knows, systems like TRAPPIST-1 might be easily colonized by their inhabitants. That wraps it up for this week's Astrometric Support. Let's open hailing frequencies and see what's incoming. Message coming in, sir. Hailing frequencies. Open. See, we are getting to know each other. Well, Captains, this is the part of the show where we open hailing frequencies for your incoming messages. Episode 366's community question was, well, we didn't have one, but our friends are the best, and you folks didn't let our lack of a community question stop you from keeping the conversation going. From Patreon, James Golding says, I'm very excited about the new faction in STO, although I'm a little saddened. I really want a fully playable Cardassian story and faction. DS9 told us enough about their culture to make them my favorite race, but I would love to have the chance to explore them. A Ferengi faction would also be amazing. Hashtag play Ferengi. Hashtag kiss the staff. From Patreon, David S. writes in, I think that that is a good sign that the company behind Bridge Crew is adding TNG. Hopefully they continue to expand on it by adding the bridges from the various series and movies. I'll also echo the sentiment that they need more single-player story missions. I just got a VR setup, so I haven't made it through all of them yet, but I suspect I will pretty quickly. From Facebook, Ray Borg says, The only feedback I have is that this is an awesome show. I've been listening for several years now, and Priority One is the best show in the Alpha, Beta, Delta, and Gamma Quadrants. Uh, LLAP little hand emoji. From Facebook, Chris Keen says, I'll tell you what I think, but it's nothing you don't already know. I love P1, its presenters, and the crew behind the microphones. 
You guys, you're so cute. Thank you so much. That's really, that's actually really, really sweet. And, you know, both names that obviously we've known and loved for years and years. I'm not sure if I'm, I'm not sure I've met Ray in person, but I've definitely. <laughs> no, we've not, we've not met Ray in, Ray in person because no. he's all the way in Australia. Oh, right. That needs to happen at some point. From Twitter, Hayden Jones writes in, I miss your songs and sketches. Bring them back. We just, you stopped right there. So I was going to say, as we were saying, you're going to be, you know, doing Les Mis. So there should be no, you know, no shortage. Well, well, here's what I should do. I should record a, like a, a, a more um, isolated version of the stars that I did for uh, yeah, that was good. rules. Um, the live cabaret. version is good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to record. I'm going to record it locally here in my little studio and publish it and do it that way. The so live version was really good, man. I mean, we, it had the crowd going have, and stuff on it. We actually almost we've got like half an album already of um, we do have half an album we should do oh my god we do have Release half an album, an album. we, we have do album. Uh, there's a song <laughs> we've never done that I wrote the lyrics to for the Christmas thing and, and that is, still, that still is in the true. hard drive yeah it's least, depending we got on, a, on a female who can sing Mariah Carey or or, or a male who's or, really or, ambitious <laughs> who's who's interested in I'm not that ambitious you're not that ambitious okay uh, just thinking but right, we'll, we'll work on it. <laughs> From Facebook, Ryan Ryder says, Based on the title, I thought I was in for a Cyric Lofton interview this week, but Jake Morgan did a great job, even if he wasn't on DS9. Smiley face. Yes, not not that Jake. This our Jake. It's the it's not the that Jake. Uh yes, a big shout out to Jake Morgan, who filled in last minute, literally last minute, zero hour when Tony's computer crashed during the live recording uh jake did a phenomenal job so big round of applause to to jake for filling in last minute he did just i mean look guys there was a part he's not a, and it was knocked out he's of that jake part. morgan jake morgan is not a a a regular voice that you hear on the show um but he is a major part of its production so he works behind the scenes he's like tirelessly he the volunteers in the wheels he really is. So so a big shout out to Jake. Thank you so very much for, for filling in, man. It was just, it was great having you, and I wish we could have you on more often. From Facebook, Jim Walsh says, You read a comment of mine in episode 364 and then smashed me flat, so I feel like I have to explain. Discovery has just had the best first season of any Star Trek franchise. The quote-unquote bad episodes, and I loved both Harry Mudd episodes, and the weird Sarix brain episode were still better than a great deal of TNG's first season, and certainly DS9 and Voyager's freshman season. I find TOS anachronistic now and difficult to watch. Discovery had enough action and strangeness to make me download it to my iPad and watch on the train on the way to work. I normally sleep then. For the most part, yeah. I think the Sarek brain one, that one kind of goes... That one kind of ranks down there too. There's there's some Star Trek TNGs that were kind of kind of there too. But I mean, they did do really good for a Star Trek first season. That it, it's true. It's that it is true. Yeah, I, I have to I, I have to agree. When you when you line it up against the other point. series, yeah, I don't yeah. think that's an arguable point. I mean, it, it, they it's just that expectations were set very high, unlike a lot of previous Star Trek series um, expectations from the from the community were a lot higher maybe not from the network suits um but it was there were there were some pretty high expectations but and for the most part they got it but it 
learn some lessons. As long as they learn the right lessons, season two will be better, and season three, again, historically, is when they'll hit their stride. And I'm sorry, Jim. I hope you didn't think that we were really poo-pooing on, on your feedback. It, uh, we may have just gone away on a tangent, but we hope never to discourage anybody from reaching out to us here at Priority One Podcast, because even without a community question, y'all still delivered. So thank you so very much for staying engaged, and it's why we do what we do. Well, that wraps up episode 367 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. For more great podcasts like Mission Log, Women at Warp, and The Trek Files, visit podcasts.roddenberry.com. But before we go, here's a reminder of our community questions this week. What do you hope Nicholas Myers' trilogy is about? And have you had an opportunity to attend a Star Trek event, a film screening or con, or something else? What was your experience like? Captains, you know we love hearing from you. So leave us a comment on our website at PriorityOnePodcast.com, on our Facebook page at Facebook.com forward slash PriorityOnePodcast, or tweet us via at Priority One Pod. Don't miss a thing from the Star Trek multiverse. Catch our episodes every Friday by pointing your favorite podcast app to feeds.priorityonepodcast.com. You can even join in on the fun while we record our episodes live on Tuesday nights at around 11 p.m. Eastern on Facebook. Keep an eye on our social media channels for details. And if that wasn't enough, you can join us in Star Trek Online in the Priority One Armada. If you're interested, just head over to PriorityOneArmada.com and sign up today. And don't forget that every Saturday night, the Armada takes to our Twitch channel where we review the latest Star Trek Online and Armada news, as well as highlighting some of the amazing members in our community. Each week we team up with you, the viewers, and earn things like Reputation Marks and Dilithium. With regular giveaways, there's something for all STO players, new and old. Follow us on twitch.tv forward slash Priority One. This episode of Priority One Podcast is brought to you by our patrons through patreon.com. Find out more and add your support at patreon.com forward slash Priority One. Even if you can't make a financial contribution, please help spread the word about the show and invite your fellow Trekkies. It's your support that keeps us going. Don't forget to tune into Priority One Productions' Guard Frequency podcast at GuardFrequency.com. Each episode, the Guard will take you inside the universe of your favorite space sims, including a tabletop adventure played out by your hosts. And Heroes Rise brings you up to date with the world of Dungeons & Dragons. Learn all about the latest publications, tools, tips, tricks, and traps in less time than it takes to skin a wyvern. Head over to HeroesRisePodcast.com to discover their secrets. Thanks to our audio team led by Michael McDonald, with assistance from Brandon Parker, Jake Morgan, and additional support from Midnight Shadow 7 of Hollow Sweet Media. Speaking of Jake, a big thanks to him and his support as producer here on Priority One Podcast. Thanks to our graphic artist and web designer, Henry Pomper. Thanks to the composer of our theme music, Chris Watts. Thanks to our syndication partners, Subspace Radio and Trek Radio. Thanks to Patreon associate producers, Navy Boats Lou and Jim DeVico. But most importantly, a big thanks to you, the Star Trek community and our listeners. Because without your ongoing support, none of this would be possible. Enemy ship on sensors. Red alert. Shields up. Ready weapons. Engage.
Transfer complete. This is Elijah. Intro, sync one. This is Kenna. Intro, sync two. This is Tony. Roblox, sync three. <laughs> this is Winter's um, intro, sync four, I think. This is Elijah, who's not laughing. It says Winter's, but does you want? do you want Tony? I think he wants Tony. Want... Sure, give us Tony. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he, is the, he, he is the grease. We are covered in Jake right now, all of us. Just... All right. Well, that's gonna get that's gonna get edited out. <laughs> I take back what I said about not needing editing. I take that back. By the way, uh, to uh, Brandon Parker, you're listening to this now. I'm sorry, because <laughs> he's the one that's going to be editing this. <laughs> I don't know, Brandon. I think a lot of it's comedy gold. You can keep a lot. You just leave a lot of it in, Brandon. Brandon also, Brandon, what did touch. you do to Winters? A light touch. A light touch this week. <laughs> no, 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 hell no, 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 I refuse, no, no. This is Elijah, closing, sync one. This is Kenna, closing, sync two. This is Tony, I've got nothing funny to say, sync three. Captains, you know we love hearing from you, so leave us a comment on our website at priority1podcast.com. On our Facebook page at facebook.com. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> every time now, every time now, I'm going to be thinking about facebook.com forward slash Facebook, Facebook. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh. I'm sorry, I have cat hair in my nose. <laughs> really? Oh, Jesus. Oh, it really itches. It's really hard to concentrate. I've got like one hair. Blow your nose. No, it's... it's you know what having a cat is like? It's just, it's, uh, whatever. Cash hair up your nose. I, yeah. I, I sense a show it's not, title. It's... <laughs> <laughs> you can even join in on the fun while we record our episodes live on Tuesday nights at around 11.30 p.m. Eastern on Facebook page. Keep an eye on our social media. <laughs> What? <laughs> Get out of here. Get out of here. You did that you did that accidentally? Oh, oh, I thought I thought you No. Who would do that accidentally? Nobody. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> who would, would do that. Who, who would? <laughs> Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.